Support for Father David Abernethy and his ministry at the Pittsburgh Oratory of St. Philip Neri comes entirely from the donations of community members and listeners like you. The creation of future groups and podcast episodes depends on your commitment and generosity. We humbly ask that you consider a monthly gift of $10 to the Pittsburgh Oratory in support of Father David and his work. To make this or any gift, please visit www.thepittsburghoratory.org, click the Donate button, and write Father David in the notes section. You can also make a recurring or one-time donation directly through Podbean. Your commitment and ministry-sustaining support are greatly appreciated. God bless you, and enjoy the podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergatinos, and we're picking up tonight on page 157 of the text, the first volume, and if you remember, we're looking at Hypothesis 20 on the uh, advice of the fathers and following the advice of the fathers, and uh, but also the revelation of one's thoughts uh, fully to one's fathers as well, that there is something that's deeply healing about this, but also frees one from possible delusion. And uh, there's some really beautiful examples here, beautiful teachings, and I think uh, aspects of the spiritual life that maybe we don't hear very much about. Uh, I think we're, um, we hear more about them in terms of confession, you know, certainly revealing everything that we've uh, committed, you know, in terms of our, our sins and uh, seeking to be absolved from. But uh, we see among the practice of these early elders, the revelation of every thought that one would have, uh, good or bad, really, in order to be able to avoid delusion, uh, because they saw that the evil one at times could tempt people to pursue things that on the surface seem very good, but not might not be in accord with the, the person's state in life, or where they are in their spiritual journey, uh, in terms of uh, their emotional or spiritual maturity. And so it wasn't just the revelation of obviously sinful thoughts, uh, but also of good thoughts that come into one's mind. And so again, we're picking up on page 157, uh, letter C down towards the bottom of the page from the Gerontocon. Number one, we once visited one of the fathers and posed the following question. Father, if one is bothered by certain temptation, and seeing that he is slowly being conquered by it, despite reading many times what the fathers say about overcoming temptation and trying to apply it, does not totally, totally succeed. What is preferable, that he should reveal his temptation to one of the fathers, or that he should concern himself with applying what he has studied and be satisfied in his conscience? The elder answered, one who is embattled by a temptation has the obligation to reveal this thought of his, of his to someone who has the strength to benefit him. For support, he should not only rely on himself, for no one is able to help himself when he is actually tormented by passions. 
And so here, you know, more than the study of the fathers and the study of their teachings, uh, when one is embattled and struggling and continues to be embattled, that there is something that is very important in healing to be able to humble oneself, even in the face of feelings of embarrassment or shame. And this is often something that will hold us back in the spiritual life, that we're often embarrassed about the thoughts that come into our mind suddenly and often don't even know where they come from, but nonetheless, they can be somewhat embarrassing or shocking or violent or any number of things. And, uh, and so right off the bat here, he's told, rather than perpetuating one's struggle with them and continuing to be overcome by them, it's best to lay them out fully into the light before one's elder. And that through this comes a kind of healing by exposing the thought itself uh, the elder is able to act as a kind of physician and apply the necessary healing balm that might not be obvious to the person struggling simply from uh, his own intuition or from his study. And so this is the, what they're getting at here. To me, continued the elder, the following occurred when I was younger. I suffered from a spiritual passion and I succumbed to it. I was informed by Abba Zeno healed, uh, I had, I, I'm sorry, I was informed that Abba Zeno healed many who found themselves in situations like mine. Therefore, I also decided to go and to reveal to Abba Zeno my passion. However, Satan hindered me, whispering in my soul high-sounding thoughts. Since you know what you must do, act according to what you've studied in books. Why should you go and trouble the elder? As many times then as I would decide to go to visit the elder and to reveal to him my temptation, I would feel relief from the onslaught of that passion. This certainly was the cunning of the devil, so that I would not go, since when I would decide not to go, I would again be possessed by the passion. Now for a long time, the enemy pulled me astray into this trap, not tolerating that I should confess my temptation to the elder. Many times I would go to the elder with a decision to tell him, my, tell him my temptation. However, the enemy would not let me because the embarrassment which he caused in my heart. Since you know, he would say in my thoughts, how you must heal yourself. What is the need to reveal to someone your passion? Besides, you are not negligent. You know what the fathers have said about similar situations. So you can see the, the deceit there that you know, the devil will uh, bring upon us a kind of onslaught of thoughts, of temptations and embarrassing thoughts at times. And uh, if, as one is preparing to seek out help, you know, the, the thought can come in that seems rational. You, you know what needs to be done. You know what you need to embrace in terms of the ascetical life or the life of reading, spiritual reading or fasting or whatever it might be. So just apply it. And, uh, and so the temptation is to, to trust in one's own judgment. And then as soon as one is drawn away, either by following that judgment or by the feelings of, of embarrassment or shame because of the nature of the, of the thoughts, then uh, again, the temptations come upon us. 
uh, because the, the devil's already won that battle, that he's prevented us from coming to the elder and simply laying before him. And I think everybody would acknowledge that this is a hard thing, that throughout the course of a given day, uh, thoughts that can come to our mind can uh, be from one extreme to another. They can be relatively benign, but sometimes thoughts will arise out of the depths, uh, I, you know, either come to us from the evil one himself, arise out of the depths of the unconscious, and uh, re really at times can be quite disturbing. And... Uh, they, as I said, they can be violent, they can be sensual, uh, any number of things uh, can make us hesitant uh, to bring them forward and actually speak them. And we see the struggle, we'll see the struggle here in the monks as we move forward to do this. Josie. When we have thoughts that we don't identify with the inner self or inner man, but rather as false self, are we meant to engage them in order to dismantle them at the root and deal with what part of, of us causes or wants to believe them? Or alternatively, do we simply ignore them, reject them as false, and just recenter ourselves? It's a good question. You know, I think when we look at the, the writings of the Father, as a majority, they tell us not to engage directly with the thoughts or temptations as they come upon us. That there's always a danger that we'll get tied up in the, in the struggle itself. And rather than alleviating the, the flood of thoughts, we can actually aggravate it. And if we're engaged in a battle with the evil one, you know, uh, sort of matching our wits with his own, uh, we're going to lose that, that battle. And so typically the fathers will say, don't engage the thoughts at all, but rather take up the, the non-discursive kinds of prayers that we've talked about in the past, uh, such as the Jesus prayer, to gently turn the mind and the heart toward God, to remember God in order to draw oneself into that relationship, to receive the grace that is needed, to, to set the so thoughts aside. So the Jesus prayer almost becomes... Uh, like this gentle weapon, if you will, of cutting away the thoughts or the distractions. And so rather than examining or analyzing the thoughts, which again can get us twisted up in them and their origin, it is better simply to pay them no mind, but to direct one's thoughts towards God or to the, towards that which is good. And, uh, and here, you know, I think we would even, it is even best, they would tell us, uh, not only to set them aside, but to reveal them, to expose them to the elder, that there's something about the humbling of oneself in doing that, to laying them bare, so they're not just in the mind. Uh, because even at times when I think we set them aside, there's still part of them that lingers within us. And as we see here, the, the evil one can sort of pull back in terms of the flood of thoughts and temptations, that the revelation of them to an elder draws them out into the light and allows the elder to, again, apply, what, apply whatever healing remedy or to intercede on behalf of the one in his care. And as we'll hear in some of the coming stories, that it's often the intercession of the elder on behalf of the one in his charge that brings healing, 
that helps him overcome the onslaught. Tyler, uh, Tyler followed up with this. This brings to mind the psalmist when he speaks about in Psalm 136, to deal with those sins, passions, vices by dashing them against the rock, to dash them against the rock of Christ early on rather than much later. Absolutely. So not to allow the thoughts to grow and develop, not to linger with them in our mind. Uh, I think we've probably all had this experience where a thought will come to mind and we'll nurture it, we'll nurse it into something greater. And uh, especially if it's something that has a particular hold upon us, that even though we know that it's troublesome for us, sometimes we will linger very long with it, enough to allow it to take hold. And that's, you know, getting back to Tyler's point here of, of dashing them against the rocks, as it were, early on, when they have no power uh, in order to destroy them. Uh, sometimes the fathers describe this as cutting off the head of the serpent before it gets its head in the door. Uh, that once the head is in the door, the body quickly follows. And so uh, one cannot delay or linger uh, with thoughts of this kind. Okay. So we'll move on just a little bit more and see what they have to tell us here. But you'll see, I think, as we go through how much shame and embarrassment comes into play. Uh, and part of that ties into our pride, our self-esteem, that it is often very difficult for us uh, because this is just so humbling. Uh, even though it is simply a thought, something comes, that comes to mind from any number of sources that uh, the, the humbling that takes place there you know, can be very difficult for us, uh, even within the confessional. The enemy brought all these things into my mind so that I would not reveal my passion to the doctor and be healed. The elder, however, realized that I was being tormented by temptations. He did not reproach me, but waited for me to reveal them myself. He also instructed me about the correct manner of living and let me depart with his blessing. Once, however, after one such visit, while grieving over my miserable condition, I said to myself, how much longer, my miserable soul, will you go without being healed? Many come to the elder who live far away and are healed. Are you not ashamed to have the physician so near and yet not be healed? Therefore, since my heart was warmed by these thoughts and arose at once and said to myself, I will go to the elder, and if I find there no visitors, I will know that it is the will of God that I confess to him my thought. And indeed, going to the cell of the elder, I found no one. And so it's interesting here, you know, these are very early writings, uh, but we find here the, the use of the the descriptor of doctor or physician in relationship to the elder. And so taking this kind of um, very, very medical view or healing approach to this, the spiritual life, uh, that the elder is in no sense a judge, having struggled with the same things in his own life. And uh, as we go through some of the stories, we'll begin to see that it's the compassion and the gentleness of the, the elder 
that is, uh, is the, the, the thing that often gives the individual confidence to bring forward the hidden thoughts. The, the, the elder is so compassionate in engaging and not pressing uh, the person to say, say what's on their mind, but gently encouraging them and even telling them about the things that they've struggled with themselves in the course of their spiritual battle until the person uh, is able to freely uh, and audibly communicate it to the elder. So it's quite a beautiful thing that we see develop here that there's such a, a personal tie to the elder and, uh, but also a kind of gentleness that we, we see within them. The elder, as was his custom, instructed me again about the salvation of the soul and how it is necessary for a person to be cleansed of shameful thoughts. I, from shame, again disclosed nothing to him and was getting ready to leave. Standing up, he blessed me and showed me out, walked ahead of me to the front door of his cell. Tormented, however, by the thought of whether or not I should confess my temptations to the elder, I walked behind him with hesitating steps. Then the elder turned to me and seeing me thus tortured by thoughts, tapped me in a friendly way on the chest and said to me, my son, what is wrong? I am also a man. I felt the words of the elder open my heart and falling on my knees, I implored him with tears. Father, take pity on me. What is the matter, my child? asked the elder, do you not know what is wrong? The elder, as if he knew the secret in my heart, said to me, it is necessary that you say it. At that moment then, I with great shame confessed to him my passion. After listening to me, the elder said, why were you ashamed to entrust this to me for so long? Perhaps I am not also a man? Did you just want me to reveal to you what I knew? Why would you come here for three years already, tormented by these temptations, but without confessing them? And so the, the paragraph up above here, you know, the deep compassion of the elder, I felt the words of the elder open my heart and falling on my knees, I implored him. Uh, would that we all would have such an elder that, that tangibly we would be able to experience the, the compassion there and how he gently seeks to draw, draw it out of him. And here we see it, it takes him three years to articulate what was tormenting his heart. And not during this whole time did the elder uh, scrutinize his thoughts or press him in any way, asking him, you know, as, as though he was interrogating him, that there was something about you know, his being able to freely acknowledge what was going on in his heart that would be more deeply healing than if the elder simply blurted it out. And um, I think sometimes confessors can have a hard time with that, you know, having that kind of, uh, of patience and not putting forward things perhaps and realizing that there might be a great deal of work over time to help the individual begin to trust not only the, the elder or the confessor, but also to trust in the mercy of God. The God who sees all of these things is not standing uh, above him as 
uh, you know, this harsh judge, but one who wants to draw him back to himself, very much in the image of the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son. And so he says, after this, deeply moved by him, I fell again on my knees saying, you are right, Father. I beg you now to take pity on me for the love of the Lord. And again, the elder added graciously, go, do not neglect your prayer and criticize no one. And so, you know, he sends him off again with no shame, uh, no harsh rebuke, but encourages him to embrace the path that will continue to bring healing, pray and humility. Do not criticize another. You who have had such a difficult time acknowledging the truth about yourself, do not you know, point out the truth or the weaknesses of others. And the same gentleness that you've been, been offered, offered to others as well. Again, the elder grace said graciously, go and do not neglect your prayer. Go back to my, going back to my cell and busying myself constantly with my prayer by the, gra- by the grace to be sure of Christ. And through the prayers of the elder, I was never bothered again by that passion. So an extraordinary thing, you know, after three years of struggling and three years of being tormented with the guilt and the shame of his own thoughts, that the the moment that he could open his heart, not just to the elder, certainly, but to God himself, the the flood of grace is so great that he never struggles with the same passion again. And this tells us something really beautiful and powerful uh, about this level of trust in God. You know, the, the elder simply stands in this place as physician, as healer, but it's really our, our opening our minds and our hearts to God and being able to articulate clearly and honestly what it is that we struggle with to the divine physician. And that brings about the, the deepest healing for us. And it seems so simple. And, uh, you know, we have a tendency to complicate the spiritual life. But when it comes down to it, it is, th- it is this simple you know, our, our willingness to humble ourselves is what then allow God to exalt, to exalt us, to lift us up and to heal us. And to, so to let go of pride, of this kind of false self-esteem and cast ourselves into the hands of the living God and allow him to heal us. And it's a beautiful thing. And uh, not only for, I think, the psychological healing that takes place through being able to do so, the freedom from the shame, uh, but the intimacy that develops between oneself and God at that point, any impediment or barrier that we have, and we see how great it was for him. He was tormented all during this time. And so one wonders, you know, what his prayer must have been like, how difficult a struggle that must have been, you know, because even in the times of perhaps greater peace, he would have been carrying in his mind and heart this deep shame uh, until he was able to finally articulate it. So any questions before we move on because the story shifts a little bit here, any comment? Okay. A year later, 
the following thought assailed my mind. Perhaps God had compassion on you because of his mercy alone and not because of the elder. As soon as this thought came to me, I went immediately to the elder cell in order to test him. After finding him, I prostrated before him and said, Father, for the love of God, I implore you to pray for me on account of that temptation which once I confessed to you. The elder left me on my knees, then falling silent for a moment. Afterwards, he said to me, get up. You should have faith. As soon as I heard this answer, I experienced such shame at the moment that I wanted the earth to swallow me. And after I rose, I did not have the strength to face the elder, but returned to my cell full of wonder and astonishment. So there's a, a, another assault that comes to him, which is to, to doubt the efficacy of the elder's intercession on his behalf. And that God would work through an individual like this, work through a mediator to help bring about healing in such a concrete way. And one can see that on some level, his faith had broken down, uh, that God had given him the elder in order that he might experience that tenderness and that forgiveness concretely and tangibly. Uh, and he wanted to simply believe that God had shown it and would have shown it without really articulating it without having uh, to make use, if you will, of, of the elder. So he's, you know, he's being tempted here or tempting himself, you know, you know, maybe it was just God who healed me. Maybe I really didn't need that elder's intervention here or to go, go through that. And you think, holy cow, after three years and the healing that came to him and the complete freedom from the passion, how quickly self-esteem can step back in or our ego and and so the elders tells him you know get up and be on your way you, you should have should have faith that you know he lost sight of what god had done for him and the mercy that was shown to him through the elder uh, of course you know it was by grace uh, but nonetheless, it was through the uh, intercession of this elder and his compassion and gentleness. And this is what the, the young man is calling into question. And, you know, often we hear in, in various stories within the fathers, and even St. Philip Neri talks about this too, that sometimes the, the evil one can try to put a divide between oneself and one's elder or one's confessor to create, you know, a, a scenario where one becomes angry with, you know, one's confessor or one's elder or, or the trust is broken down in some, some way. Uh, you know, obviously not for something serious, but, um, you know, for some, in some subtle way, that relationship is undermined. Uh, in order that the person begins to to search for someone someone else, and it can be a problematic deception uh, because it leads to a kind of leapfrogging around that is really rooted in this kind of avoidance. Uh, 
I, I think of humbly acknowledging the deeper things within our hearts. Because if we jump from confessor to confessor or from spiritual director to spiritual director, we can always remain on the surface. And so we can be talking about important things in our life or that have taken place in our life, but perhaps never move forward in the sense that we allow God to work on us in the way that God wants to work on us and uh, in order to bring healing that we want to stay on that ground where we're sort of struggling with the well-known things that we see in our life, rather than opening ourselves up in a way to be seen by God and to have revealed to us by God or through the elder, the things that we need to address. Any comments or thoughts? Tyler says, this story is very interesting when someone is held by passions, but how can one relate to, to those to, who struggle with scrupulosity in their confession? Yet scrupulosity is certainly a different question. And uh, because it's often driven not so much by shame and embarrassment uh, as uh, I think by... Uh, more by fear and that doubts the, you know, the mercy of God uh, or a kind of, there's a kind of compulsiveness there, obsessiveness about whether one was thorough enough. And so a kind of uh, legalism will, will, you know, come into the picture as well. You know, have I been specific enough about every single thing that I've struggled with? Or did I omit anything, even by accident? And if so, you know, then how, how can I trust that the absolution that I've received is valid? And so in religion, religion in the spiritual life, uh, you know, our human tendencies towards this kind of obsessive compulsive thinking uh, can really have a, a strong effect upon us. And when it's added to the things that we've been discussing here, it's sort of an, another level that I think has to be overcome. It's very good, I think, to go, uh, maybe I'm going too much in depth here, but I think it's very good to go to the same confessor regularly uh, who knows the struggle that exists there with scrupulosity. And so the confessor over the course of time can see the things that are being repeated and to be able to assure the person, to give them confidence that it has been given, been forgiven and does not need to be confessed once again. And this might have to be done re repeatedly over the course of time to sort of break that habit and some, that which is driven by fear and anxiety can be incredibly strong. So again, this takes a kind of tenderness and compassion that I think we see in this elder and the willingness not to become frustrated with this repetitive pattern of wanting to bring up things that have been confessed multiple times. And yet where there is this, again, this fear that it could not possibly be forgiven. And so one, uh, I rarely find that it's a matter uh, of shame for individuals. 
or embarrassment so much as it is rooted in this uh, obsessive, obsessive thinking that is tied more to fear and anxiety about the mercy of God. And so it seems subtle and it is subtle, but uh, you know, I think fear is the deeper driving force, not just ego and shame over something. Any follow-up to that, Tyler, or was that? Okay. Should I move on or are there any other comments? All right. So get up, you should have faith. And so wanting the earth to swallow him at this point, I thought that was an interesting image because he realizes what he did there, that he, he put the elder to the test, the one who had been so merciful and so compassionate to him. It was as though he was coming to him and saying, I, I don't trust that this was done through your, your aid. And so I'm coming now to put you to the test to see then if you're going, how you'll respond to me saying, you know, I need you to pray for me about this temptation, even though I have not been plagued by it. And so there's a, even a kind of subtle deceit that he falls into here to put the elder to the test to see if the elder really knows, you know, what is going on internally with him. And the elder sees perfectly, in a, in a perfectly clear way, you know, that it's rooted in his lack of faith. He's come back, you know, because he, you know, wants to cling to this idea that I can simply offer that up to God and not have to rely upon this concrete, audible articulation of my thoughts and my sins. I think sometimes, you know, when I've had, you know, certainly coming into the faith, I had the thoughts myself too, but sometimes in conversations with those who don't have a, a, a really a sacramental worldview or a sacramental view of the faith, that there can be this tendency to think that this is unimportant. Uh, and I think it's rooted in this lack, this much different view of the incarnation. Uh, to really, to be honest with you, about God coming among us and taking our flesh upon us and the radical intimacy that that brings about between ourselves and God, and that this is something that's perpetuated uh, after the ascension and within the life of the church, that God wants us to be able to experience in the most concrete and tangible way his mercy, his love, his gentleness. This is why he took our flesh upon himself. And sometimes when, you know, we lack this sacramental worldview, again, it becomes an intellectual kind of thing, you know, rooted in our thoughts. Well, if I just ask God for this forgiveness or think about it, that uh, this is sufficient, not realizing that God wants to give us something far more, you know, this kind of perfect peace, but also freedom from the torment of those passions. Josie. It's okay, you answered, thank you. Okay. <laughs> All right, anybody else? Okay. Let's see, where did I leave off here? 
wonder and astonishment. So number two, the ascetic elder said, he who becomes a fool for the sake of the Lord will make himself wise. So, you know, a willingness to set aside one's dignity is the path to, to wisdom. You know, that we will cling to, again, a certain kind of image and, uh, you know, want to hold on to that, both for ourselves, uh, but also that it might be maintained in the eyes of others. And so this idea of this willingness to set it aside by the revelation of one's thoughts uh, is a difficult thing for us to embrace. But that's, this is exactly what it is. You know, letting go of the illusion of dignity and wisdom is the path to wisdom. You know, it, is, it is, op opens up for us a vision of what really brings us healing and hope what allows us to experience intimacy with God, what is, allows us to experience the love of God. And uh, the moment that we're able to do that is when we begin to experience healing. And we alone can't be sort of the judge of that humble path. You know, okay, I've made myself enough of a fool. You know, I'm you know, going to hold back a little bit so I don't seem like a complete idiot here. And, uh, you know, I think our path is always to be this one of, of humility, of laying everything out before the eyes of God in order to, to experience healing. Okay. Any thoughts? Okay, quite humble crowd tonight. Anyone want to talk about their most embarrassing moment ever? <laughs> no? Okay. No takers? All right. Number three, a brother asked a certain elder, why do I suffer from temptations despite the fact that I associate with elders? The elder answered, the enemy rejoices in nothing else as much as he does in those who do not reveal their temptations. And so simply be, by being around those who are holy is not enough. You know, that our reading the Evergatinos or St. John Climacus or being around somebody who lives a holy life, uh, there's a, certainly a value to that. Uh, but it's not going to bring the kind of healing that the fathers are speaking about in, in this section that the enemy will rejoice, you know, in our association with those uh, so long as we uh, aren't willing to follow through with it and really reveal what's going on within us or to communicate it in such a way that we color it and shape it in such a way that, it, again, it allows us to hold on to a certain shred of dignity. Uh, you know, well, if, you know, we'll say to the elder, you know, uh, I've done this, but I, I or we'll, we'll cloak it. You know, I'm, I've been really making improvement in this area, or I've made improvements in these other areas, but then I've done this, you know, kind of thing that there we can seek to uh, sort of present our, our thoughts or our sins in such a way that we 
cast them in the light of all the other good that we're doing. Uh, and, you know, it's understandable. And I, I, I certainly have done the same thing myself, you know, many times, but it's saving face, I think is, is what we're trying to do there. And uh, by, you know, tying our spiritual gains to our, our weaknesses and struggles at the same time. And uh, the fathers often will say, we should reveal the things that are worst in our mind or the passions that we struggle with the most or afflict us the most, not leave it at the end of the list. That's, that's another little trick that we try to do that we'll, we'll go through this long list and be very descriptive and then we'll throw in that biggie at the, at the end. Uh, uh, to get it out is a good thing. Don't get me wrong, but sometimes I think we'll, we'll do that again uh, to lessen, lessen the blow. Whereas the fathers tell us, you know, the, it's the worst one that you want to get out there because that's what you really want the doctor to look at, the elder to look at. And, you know, the, as we see in these uh, physicians or these elders, you know, they're able to pick up on that. But it's, it's not as though we want to, to hide it. Uh, just as a funny little story, I, I had a, it's sort of embarrassing, but I, I had a hernia <laughs> that I had put off dealing with for years. And I remember going into the doctor, I finally, you know, I just couldn't, it was bothering me so much on a day-to-day -day basis that I went to the doctor and I remember saying, and, you know, he had asked something like, well, how long have you had this kind of thing? <laughs> it had been like 10 years, you know, kind of thing. And I, I remember apologizing to him. He said, oh, no, no, you know, don't, don't apologize about it. You know, it, it just... He wasn't being judgmental because he's probably seen that a thousand times. People put off dealing with the things that they struggle with because they're avoiding dealing with them. And uh, it ended up that I had two hernias, like one gave birth to another one because I had waited so long. <laughs> so by the time I had surgery, the scar was double the size uh, that it needed to be. And so in the spiritual life, I know that's a pretty pathetic analogy, but in the spiritual life, uh, I think we can do the same thing, you know, delay, 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 we'll even be willing to put up with the discomfort and the pain, I think, that sin brings into our life. And uh, it can grow in magnitude, and we find ourselves carrying this great burden, uh, all because there is this hesitancy to, to look at it and to, do, to bring it before another who can heal us. So, any thoughts on that? Nope, okay. All right, number four, Abba Anthony said, I know monks who fell after many ascetic labors and who lost their minds because they placed their hopes in their deeds only and did not keep in mind the commandment of him who said, ask thy father and he shall show thee, thy elders and they will tell thee. So, you know, this is always the danger of the ascetical life, especially lived in isolation. 
And this is why the ascetical life is not about escaping the world or leaving the world, that it's about the in interior life and seeking healing and the interior life. And so a person who engages in labors uh, and who has fallen after those labors and is on their own uh, and with nobody really to offer them help or healing can lose their minds in, in the sense that, you know, they are so deeply wounded by affliction and the healing put off so long uh, and no, having no one there to assist them, they go deeper and deeper into that darkness uh, to the point that they, they lose uh, they, they lose perspective on reality itself. So the, the, even the affliction that could have been easily healed at one point, if ignored, or if we seek to walk that spiritual path alone, uh, can take us over altogether. Again, this, I think it brings something beautiful to light about Catholicism and the availability of confession and uh, you know, I think it, throughout the centuries it has been a big source of healing. And, um, and we've often talked here about St. Philip Neri, you know, living in a time like our own and beginning with the healing sacrament to, to bring healing to Rome itself and the Christians in Rome that were lived in a time very much like our own. And so he began with, you know, with, with what the church taught. He didn't, you know, recreate things, but embrace the wisdom of the church and, uh, and the healing that comes through the sacrament itself. And I think in large measure, there, there would be deep healing within the life of the church through this kind of accessibility uh, to the grace and the healing of, of the sacrament. And our learning, I think, through experience, uh, the the, the nature of that encounter with God through the sacrament and the deep healing that comes through it. And the more frequently that we engage in it, uh, the, the greater that becomes. You know, we become free in articulating those thoughts that at one time maybe did give rise to great shame or embarrassment. Mm. All right, uh, Anthony. These elders, are they experienced mature Christians or is elder in these stories here, the equivalent or, or presbyteros or such a detail or priest, right? Uh, no, at this point, it wouldn't necessarily be priest that, it, you know, it would have been those who went out into the desert to seek God and to, to seek the life of deep prayer and also to do battle with the passions and who experienced uh, great healing through the revelation of these thoughts to one's elders. But the revelation of the thoughts wasn't limited to a sacramental confession. Uh, not that that's unimportant, but I think they saw the value of, of doing this in and of itself. You know, there, there is a passage in scripture, you know, tell your sins 
to each other. What, does anybody remember what that is for me? I'm just off the top of my head. I can't quite remember that. James. Okay, thanks. And, uh, you know, certainly we wouldn't want to be indiscriminate in this. And, you know, it would uh, be a confidant. But, you know, I think I've mentioned in past groups, intuitively, the young people of our day are engaging, like those who are engaging in the Exodus 90 and things such as that, or uh, other similar paths that involve the ascetical life, often will have, like, I think they call them accountability partners, you know, where they will tell them, you know, the things that they've struggled with, or if they faltered uh, again. And I think one has to be kind of careful with that, uh, but I, I understand it. Like intuitively, I think they're doing what took place in the desert in the sense of uh, the, the free revelation of those thoughts uh, as a way of firming up one's resolve. Uh, I don't know though that it brings the same kind of healing because the elders are those who had deep experience in the struggle with the passion and so could apply uh, you know, the healing balm that could act like a, a physician. And, uh, and so I don't think there's, you know, it can be a kind of substitute, certainly not for sacramental confession, but I think it can't be a substitute for what we're reading here. But traditionally, you know, these monks weren't necessarily priests, in fact, very few. Liberty University in the early 200s encouraged accountability 2000s, just as I thought, well, Liberty University back to year 200. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, accountability partners in each and each dormitory hall had a supposedly mature student to be a spiritual leader. Yeah, I've seen this derail on occasion. And so that's why I'm cautious about it and think about it more as this intuitive sense that somehow this is important that the pain of struggling with these things in isolation and falling into them repeatedly, I, whether it's the thoughts or the actions that follow upon the thoughts is an enormous burden. And so to have someone help carry that burden with you uh, can really ease the mind and the heart. Uh, but again, you know, is it a, a mature spiritual leader or someone who can really address it in a deeper level? That's you know, another question. So I'm not saying it has no value, but I think we really want to be careful about that because you know, people can feel exposed and it can lead to deeper you know, sense of shame and humiliation you know, of bringing those things forward in an indiscriminate way. Uh, and this is why you know, I think the character of the elder, again, in uh, Herothios Vlacko's work called uh, Orthodox Psychotherapy, uh, he really addresses the nature of the spiritual father in a, in a very deep way and the qualities that are, are necessary there. And maybe we could talk about this sometime in the future, and I'll go back and reread the, the work, but he, he lays it out pretty specifically. In fact, maybe I'll do like a little uh, blog article on it. I think it would be worthwhile. Uh, and uh, 
how important that is to have this experiential knowledge and to have this kind of confidence in one who's engaged in the spiritual battle over the course of the years that isn't just talking about it again from book experience or from book knowledge but really has an experiential knowledge of what the battle battle looks like okay any other thoughts before we move forward okay oh Ren has a question. I didn't see your hand up there. A question about confession. In a situation where a certain sin has really taken root and one finds it difficult even to resolve to try and amend one's behavior, perhaps even resistant to change, what recourse does one have? The thought comes to mind that it is sacrilegious to go to confession, not hoping or firmly intending to change, but if you can't go to confession, what can you do? Are you just a lost cause? Yep, you're a lost cause. <laughs> uh, no, of course, not a lost cause. You know, I think, uh, you know, there are times certainly where we would come to confession where, you know, we know our contrition is imperfect or even our faith is struggling and uh or we have the feeling you know i just read this work from uh luis martinez archbishop luis martinez who's a servant of god he was an archbishop uh and i'm reading from a work called worshiping the hidden god and he talks about that we'll often experience this kind of desolation and uh, it's what is taking place in our life is helping us to realize that, you know, when we feel that we do not love or that we have not loved, that's not the end of things. That God often will allow desolation to come in almost as an anesthesia in order that he might work upon us do the work that he alone knows that can bring about healing that god is the one alone who can save us and so the spiritual life is not simply our progressing along this path of growing in virtue and being able to judge for ourselves you know that we've made this improvement there are these times in our lives where we are allowed to experience desolation and to see our poverty in a very deep way and it was interesting how he described that and uh and it really takes a lot i think to wrap your mind around it this idea of it having this anesthetizing quality to it that we find ourselves in that state of desolation uh and that feels very dark to us but god is actually very present in that we feel our hopelessness in other words, which I think is what is captured in your question and in your comment. We feel our hopelessness on this very profound and deep level. And yet in the, in the midst of that, God is working in order to purify the, a particular virtue within us, whether it's hope in him, trust in his grace, or helping us to overcome a passion, but usually I think it is in helping to perfect a virtue 
that we, we can make certain gains, you know, I think in the spiritual and the ascetical life. But in the end, really, it is this abandonment to God that allows him to do the work. Only he can go to this, these deep, deepest recesses of the heart. And so it's important, and I found this really very encouraging about his thought, not to see those times of desolation as the abandonment of God or as the collapse of our spiritual life or that our spiritual life up to this point has been meaningless, that we lack love or we've never loved. These are the feelings and the thoughts that often come to our mind, that it's all been an illusion. It's all been, you know, this masquerade. And uh, God can allow us to enter into that state in order that he might bring something greater forward, a, a deeper healing. And it's simply by holding on and persevering through that. And, you know, allowing ourselves to pray even in the face of that that God draws us through it. And then consolation comes upon the heels of that desolation. Now, there can be other reasons for desolation that we might be having in our life, uh, you know, in, in regards to our spiritual life and how we are engaging God. But sometimes I think God allows certain circumstances to emerge in our, our life that seem devastating to us and desolating to us. And we see within us in those moments, say if we're treated in a particular way, we, we feel broke, broken down and angry and we see our, our anger very deeply or our resentment and pain very deeply. And in that, again, we feel helpless. And it's in that helplessness though that, that God is working to bring about healing that he allows us to see that, you know, just, just how desperate things really are outside of the context of his grace and mercy. And it's not meant to punish us. It's not a rejection. It's in order to bring us greater healing. And I think in circumstances like that, I think we see the need of an elder or a very good confessor to help us make our way through that because a person can give up on the spiritual life or lose faith, you know, as your comment put forward in the value of going to confession at all, or think as, as, as it were, that it's sacrilegious to do so. And I think this writing of Martinus frees us from that and allows us to move forward in the face of feelings that seem contrary to the life of faith, when in reality, what is coming forward is that a kind of darkness that needs a greater healing. Does that help? Or, okay, any follow up to that? Forrest. Psalm 22, right? Is that Psalm 22, the Lord is my shepherd? Is that, am I thinking correctly there? I've lost my, 
help me out here. Oh, oh yes, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Thank you. Yes, absolutely. You know, because I think that captures, you know, certainly the, the essence, I think, of the, the experience that I've been describing there, this feeling of abandonment you know, that we can no longer see his love, but also, you know, and anything that we've engaged in seems a loss to us. You know, the, the wisdom of God is so far beyond the wisdom of man. I think, again, this is why it is so important to us to go back to the, the fathers, you know, to see these fundamental truths upon which the spiritual life is built. They really did have this profound understanding of the workings of the human heart. I'm so I'm ashamed I didn't know Psalm 22. I should have that. It's only fitting that I should be embarrassed at the end of the group. No, but thank you. That, that was very helpful, Forrest. Anybody else have any? Uh... <laughs> yeah, Anthony. Well, Forrest threw it out there in a cavalier manner. <laughs> so any other final thoughts for, for the evening about anything that we've read? This is a very important hypothesis, because, you know, at least from the, my perspective as a priest, and even just personally in the spiritual life, that those feelings of shame, of embarrassment, of, of helplessness, of hopelessness, all, all of these things can really be pervasive and hard to navigate our way. It can be hard to navigate our way through them. And so to know that there are those who have gone th through them and have offered and that we can read about and even in reading about them find guidance uh, is a very hopeful thing. Josie adds, it seems God is always several steps ahead of us. There's always some level of darkness in the spiritual life, I think. I would I would agree, you know, that there, you know, God sees all of these things with a clarity that we can't. And uh and I think this is what the fathers are telling us, as well as Archbishop Martinez, uh, that, you know, the, the God is able to, to navigate this and go where he needs to go in order to bring about healing. We have to trust him as we would any surgeon, you know, who, who might be operating upon us. You know, that we don't know what he, they're doing, but we know that they're removing something that needs to be removed. Okay, well, it's 8.30. And so why don't we wrap it up there for tonight? I encourage you to reread it. Beautiful and material and certainly the rest of it gets only better. Okay, so why don't we close there with the Our Father in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. 
and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. With your spirit. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Thank you all. Have a wonderful week.